0: roma for you. Lord, I pray first and foremost that everything that we do, whether it be songs, whether it be prayers, whether it be giving, whether it be preaching, whether it be receiving the word, everything that we do, I pray that it's worship to you this morning. And I pray that it's pleasing to you. Because so often we think about how does this message sound to so and so? Or how does this prayer make me feel or how does it make me appear to those around me or how does this posture and worship or how does this song so often we run it through the criteria of everybody else and people's perspectives lord when there's truly only one perspective that i am concerned with lord and that's yours what is pleasing to you in this moment And Lord, so I pray that this word, this sermon, the end of this series, Lord, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer, the gifts and the generosity that we bestow, everything is pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 3 John, verse 1. 3 John, verse 1. If you have trouble finding it, turn to Revelation, flip back past Jude, and there you go, 3 John. Verse 1. There is no chapters. It always messes me up because I always want to say Third John chapter 1. There is no chapters. It's that short of an epistle. Third John 1. Now this is the last message of our Oil of Gladness series. This is the culmination of everything. Have you guys enjoyed this series? I've enjoyed preaching it. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. I have enjoyed preaching it, and I have received some positive feedback from people that don't attend here physically, but watch online that they said that it has been a favorite series of theirs. So I'm praying that it ends as well as it has began and been up to this point, I suppose. I'm praying that what happens is this evening, this morning, not this evening, I don't want you to wait till this evening. This morning, I'm praying that God would baptize every person here with a spirit of joy that we would walk in a perpetual joy from this moment on. That it wouldn't be that we mourn or lament or struggle through our Christianity, but that we would walk in the joy of the Lord, His joy becoming our strength. And I told you guys that I believe that the two things missing in the church, the two fruits of the Spirit that are most missing in the church is peace and joy peace and joy, we're in turmoil, we're concerned, we're anxious, we're fearful, we're struggling, we're depressed, we're down and out, we're aggravated, we're frustrated, we look at what the world's doing, we look at what the church is doing, and it just breeds all of this frustration, this disgust, this fear, this anxiety, this concern about tomorrow, and we don't have the peace of the Lord, and because we don't have the peace of the Lord, we end up missing out on the joy of the Lord, and we walk through and we go to church and have a great time, smile hallelujah, and then go out to eat and uh, beat our waiter waiter or waitress up. <laughs> and you guys know it's true. I've watched it happen. There used to go be a uh, gospel singing night on Thursdays. I think it was Thursdays. I worked at McDonald's. Yes, I worked at McDonald's a long, long time ago uh, in a galaxy far, far away. But <laughs> I worked at, I worked at McDonald's and Thursday night they had a gospel singing night at McDonald's. And the people would come in to sing the gospel. They would come in and they would yell at young kids and customers and say, get out. This is our table. This is our setup. This is our space. And they would just abuse people. And it's like, you're supposed to be singing good news. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? But that's the problem is that we get so anxious and so fearful and so frustrated and so depressed and so disgusted that we have no joy and we have no peace. And that ends up becoming a toxic spirit that we communicate to those around us. And God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. So, my heart in this series has been hey, I lived a long portion of my life, over 20 years in depression, five years in ministry being depressed. I lived that way. Ministered. I would get up, I would preach the gospel. I called it my three minute rule. I would be miserable sick to my stomach i would be aggravated i would be frustrated i'd be sad feel like i'm about to burst into tears but never able to cry that's one of the worst feelings in the world if you've never been there where you feel like you need to cry and the waterworks are just inches away but they'll never come that is a awful feeling because there's no release it's just all that pent up pain and i would be there and then three minutes before i got up to preach The anointing would kick in. I'd preach the gospel, and it'd last until three minutes after i preached, and then I would go home just as frustrated, just as depressed, just as sad, just as broken as I was before I went in to preach the gospel. And that's not how God wanted me to live. So finally, he broke that spirit of depression and baptized me with the oil of gladness and the baptism of joy, and I have made it my mission to understand what happened because I don't believe that I'm an isolated instance. I don't believe that I'm the exception to the rule. I believe that that's what God wants to do for every single individual. He wants them to walk in joy. He says it perpetually over and over and over again that ask whatsoever you will in my name, believing you shall receive them that your joy may be made full. You know, that is the idea that God communicates throughout Scripture. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. What's a fruit? Something that you produce naturally. If you're in the Spirit, you should naturally produce the fruit of joy in your life. And so if we don't have it, there's an issue. That's what the whole purpose of this series has been. That's why we went to Hebrews nine. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And so the whole purpose is said, okay, this Scripture right here, says that God wants to anoint us with gladness. This scripture says that God wants to give me joy. Why do I not have it? And I told you that there's conditions that have to be met before we can receive the consequence or the promise. And I just praise God that Jesus met those conditions for me. And praise God, Jesus met those conditions for me that I don't have to be, I don't have to go down the bullet list like the honey-do list and say, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this before I can ever have the hope or the possibility of walking in the joy of the Lord. That's not the way that it functions. See, I told you guys, many people have preached from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers the violent and the violent take it by force. You guys have heard messages preached on that, right? And people will be like, you got to get mean. They will. They'll be, they'll be like, you've got you to go to war with Satan. That's great, but that's not what that scripture communicates. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now. See, now is the arena of faith. If it's not now, it's not faith. Praying and saying, Lord, do this for me tomorrow, that's Pharaoh. That's not faith. That's Pharaoh. That's not faith. When Pharaoh says, hey, entreat the Lord that the frogs be taken away, Moses says, great, I'll do that. When do you want them to go? And he says, Tomorrow. If you say, hey, Lord, I want this. I'll have it tomorrow. That's not faith. That's Pharaoh. Now is faith. Faith is in the now. Faith is in the here and now. I'm believing it and I'm receiving it now. See, the kingdom of heaven did suffer the violent. And the violent did take it by force. But now, in the arena of faith, those that are victorious in Christ Jesus receive it. We don't take it. We receive it. Christ took it. He disarmed principalities and powers and made a public show of them openly by triumphing over them in the cross. And He nailed that handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us to that tree. And remember, if it is on the tree, it can't be on me. If it's on the tree, it ain't on me. He conquered that. He took that. Now we are more than conquerors. And what's more than a conqueror? Come on, these are things I've preached over and over and mentioned in passing. What's more than a conqueror? The prize worth fighting for. That's why people will go to war over a country and die for their land and for their family. Their family has become more than a conqueror because they were the prize worth fighting for. And people were willing to lay down their life so that that prize could be protected, accepted, received, cherished. That's why God went and came in the form of man, Philippians 2, he who was with God, considered it not robbery, to be called equal with God, made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. That's why he did that, so that we would be received and invited to participate in intimacy with him. We are the prize worth fighting for. That makes us more than a conqueror. We don't have to do it. It's already been done. What's our responsibility The woman with the three measures of meal, like we've been talking about this whole series, she has to take that leaven, which represents faith in Matthew 13, and she has to work that into all three measures. She has to work that into her spirit. She has to work that into her soul, which is her mind, will, intellect, emotions, imagination, conscience, and thought, she has to work that into every arena of her soul, and then she has to work that into the physical arena, into our body as well. We have to partner with the Holy Spirit and appropriate the finished work of Jesus Christ into all three realms of our life. Amen? We don't have to earn it. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to merit it. All we've got to do is receive it and appropriate it. All we've got to do is receive it and appropriate it. So I've given you guys some points of things that have been accomplished that we need to receive and appropriate throughout this series. The first one, does anybody remember what it was? Where are my note takers at? Remember note taking is the Anglo-Saxon amen. (laughs) White people in church don't want to say amen. They don't want to shout. We don't want to jump up and down. So if you take notes, that's your amen. (laughs) Identity. There we go. I heard it. The first point is identity, knowing who you are in Christ. Knowing that you are righteous by faith, the gift of righteousness, it is a gift. It's a free gift accomplished by Christ and then given to us freely. That we don't have to earn it. We don't have to merit it. All we have to do is believe and receive. You believe in your heart that Christ, God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. You believe, you receive. You receive the righteousness of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You are made righteous or right standing with God by faith, not by works. You don't earn your salvation. We've preached that wrong. And half the time we preach that right and say, yeah, you receive salvation by faith, but then we get over until you keep it by works. If you, The moment you sin, you lose your salvation. That's what we've taught we treat it like our keys and I've done this before where all oh, this is my salvation I'm walking along hey I'm saved I hope I sinned now I've lost my salvation I've got to get back down to the altar and pick it back up again and then I walk I'm righteous I've got salvation I'm great I sinned now it's gone again I've got to kneel back down and pick it back up again come on you guys have heard it preached that way we have preached it that way for way too long and it's entirely unbiblical it's incorrect if salvation is that easy to lose it wasn't worth having in the first place and salvation is that as he lose it wasn't worth having in the first place. Christ died for your salvation. Get this. People want to talk about, well, Christ died for your sins up to the moment that you confess, and then after that, he didn't die for those. Let me ask you this. When did Christ die? Almost 2,000 years ago, almost? Had you committed any sin 2,000 years ago? No? No? So if he died for your sins in 2,000 years in the future, it's safe to say that he probably died for the sins that you commit a year from now. I mean, what is it, like a 2,000 year expiration date that he died for all sins for 2,000 years and then it suddenly expires and Christ's death isn't um, uh, applicable anymore? It isn't sufficient anymore? No? Okay, so he died for your sins past, present, and future. And you're saying, well, you're preaching eternal security. No, I'm not. I'm preaching what's called eternal redemption. Meaning that Christ purchased your sins. He paid for you. There is still a caveat. You can walk away. You can commit apostasy and you can reject God. And there is a, a conversation that we can have in that. But it is not that every time you mess up or slip or fall short that you're going to suddenly lose your salvation. Christ is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He knew every time you would mess up before you ever got down at the altar and accepted him the first time. We have got to get this right, church, and I keep laboring on this because this is the most important thing you will ever learn in your entire life. You are righteous by faith and you stay righteous by faith, not by works. Paul deals with this in Galatians 3. He says, Oh foolish Galatians. Oh foolish Galatians. And I always tell people, you have to understand the level of intensity that the Apostle is demonstrating here. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, If you call someone a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. But Paul is here using the word foolish. So it must be something strenuous enough and big enough to where he would risk that to illustrate a point. He says this, O foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has brainwashed you? Who has led you away from the truth? That you should stray from the truth. Before your own eyes, Christ was crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Having, were you, did you receive the Spirit? Were you made partakers of the Spirit by the works of the flesh or the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And the answer, he continues on, I won't continue, but the answer is no. If you are began in the Spirit, you have begun in the Spirit, the work has begun in the Spirit, it can only be brought to completion in the Spirit. You are made righteous by faith, you are kept righteous by faith, not by works. Righteous people are righteous because God has done a transforming work in them, and then they do righteous things. You can never become righteous by doing external works. That's like trying to tape oranges on an apple tree. You will never be made righteous by just doing righteous things. Amen? First point was identity. Second point was communication. I won't labor this long because I have hit on this every single week. Communication is this speaking what you believe. Paul says to the Corinthians, he's quoting the Psalms, but he says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Our problem is we become guilty of James' indictment where it says, out of the same mouth we bless God, even the Father, and then curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. For out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And then he compares it and says, Can a vine produce figs or a fig tree olive berries? Can a bitter fountain yield forth sweet water or a sweet water or a sweet fountain yield forth bitter water? No, it can't. We cannot be double minded. Do you understand that? We cannot be double minded. What we are doing is we are speaking a good word over God and then we are speaking death over everybody else. And the Bible tells us expressly that we are supposed to speak life and we are supposed to speak that which is not as though it already was. We are supposed to speak death and life, but it's Christ's death and Christ's life. And that if we do that, then we will eat the fruit of it. Our communication matters. And these things have created barriers between us and entering into perpetual joy. We can't enter into joy because we don't know who we are in Christ. We can't enter into joy because every time we're on the verge of entering into joy, we start cursing ourselves and speaking death over ourselves. We start speaking all these negative things. How can you walk in joy? Um, excuse me. How can you walk in joy when every two seconds you're saying I'm worthless? I don't know about you, but when somebody says I'm worthless, my immediate thought is not to be happy-go-lucky. Like it's like, wait a second, what? Someone, say, someone says, you know, you're broke, you're busted, you're disgusted, you're no good, you'll never amount to anything. You know, I, you guys know what people have said over you. Cindy Lou Who said you had big ears in the third grade, and now every time you look in the mirror, you're like, no, I don't. Words matter, and they carry weight. And you are not going to walk in joy if you continue to tear yourself down every time you try to stand up. So communication is important. And then the third word was repentance. And remember, repentance, we're talking about a paradigm shift. We're talking about moving from one paradigm into another, putting off one area, putting off sin, putting off the things that hinder us from joy. And I told you it's like a birthing experience. It's not that God's beating you up and tearing you down. It's that God is pointing out things in your life that are preventing you from walking in His perfect will. And let me tell you something. Faith, when she preached years ago, she said this quote. She said, your best interests are God's top of mind. And I have quoted her on that ever since because that was a word straight from the throne. Your best interests are God's top of mind. Meaning He is not just telling you these things because He wants to be mean. He is identifying things that are preventing you from walking in joy. This thing, this sin, this thing that you have in your life, this bit of the flesh, is preventing you from walking in the true joy of the Lord. And because it's preventing you from walking in the true joy, God is pointing it out and saying, you've got to cut this off. You've got to get rid of this. But remember, birthing is not a pleasant experience. It's painful. Just like circumcision is not a pleasant experience, it's painful. But you have to go through that pain to remove that barrier between you and perpetual joy. But sometimes at the thought of pain or discomfort, we shirk away from what God is telling us to do. We suppress that in unrighteousness because we're more afraid of the temporary pain than we're enticed by the promise. We're more afraid of the temporary pain than we are enticed by the promise. And that's because we don't really understand the full weight of the promise. If we could truly get a grasp of what God's inviting us into, this temporary pain would be nothing. That's why women are so eager. That's why some women are so eager to start a family. Even though they know that there is going to be an unpleasant period of childbirth, labor, all of that, they know. No one ever enters into that. In my opinion, no one ever enters into that and says, oh, this is going to be pleasant. Like, everybody knows pregnancy looks uncomfortable. You're going to move from walking to waddling, and then you're going to go through labor. Like, that does not look or sound like a pleasant experience. But the thought of holding a child is in a big enough enticement to say, I can endure nine, ten months of this so that I can have a forever of this if we truly understood the weight of the promise and the joy that God is inviting us into we would never worry about the temporary pain of repentance we wouldn't we would know this might suck a little bit but when I get through it I'm gonna walk in something worthy of that pain that's why Paul says I don't even count these temporary momentary fleeting afflictions worthy of comparison for that eternal weight of glory I'm going to receive because of it and now you got to think when Paul wrote this second Corinthians when Paul wrote this he had already been a day in the night at the deep meaning that he was holding on to a piece of shipwreck for 24 hours like is a shark gonna get me like he had already been on the verge of starvation, on the verge of freezing to death. He had been beaten with 30 or 40 stripes, save one, 39 stripes, multiple times. He had been stoned and left for dead. All of this had happened. And he's saying these temporary, these fleeting, these minimal afflictions. And I'm like, who the heck are you kidding? Minimal afflictions. Like, you went through it, brother. This is like, you need therapy to get through this. Like, you're, you've got to go through some trauma work. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what we do. Oh, we need to get counseling because we need to work and process through this trauma. And Paul's like, this is fleeting. This is momentary because he had got to ascend to the third heaven and he got to see what was waiting for him. And he said, this isn't even worthy to be compared. I'm willing to go through the temporary discomfort to get a hold of this promise. And that's the perspective that we have to maintain to truly appreciate what repentance is accomplishing in our life. And then we move from that into sanctification, which is cultivating the faith inside us, developing a deeper intimacy with the Father. We've talked about that a little bit, so I'm going to skip past that and go back into the next phase which was our fifth message and that was consecration and that was the anointing. When we talked about the presence of the anointing, we talked about the power of the anointing. We talked about the purpose. We talked about the purity and we talked about the pleasure of the anointing. All of those things that the Holy Spirit, those observations of what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in our life, that he wants to invite us into his presence and share his joy with us, that he wants to carry his power and make it manifest in our lives, that he wants to make it a pure anointing on us, not just on our gift, that he wants to align it with the word of God, that he wants Wants to change the things that bring us joy and happiness and that He wants to do it for a purpose to meet in all five arenas of our life, mainly spiritually, mentally, physically, socially, and financially. And then the very next message, and I'm going to tell you the word for that, was fellowship because my wife has pointed out at least seven times this week, hey, what was that sixth word, the overall word for last week? Because you didn't say it. And then the next day, hey, what was that sixth word for that? Because you didn't say it it was fellowship for, for those of you you don't know it was fellowship that was the f word i told you be listening for the f word and then i never shared it fellowship fellowship was the f word that we're talking about fellowship and I told you that the Holy Spirit wants to change the way that we relate to one another he wants to shift our focus so we can see people in a whole new light he wants to make us identify with one another as family he wants to bring us freedom from the fear of man he wants to fill us and he doesn't want to just fill a few of us he wants to fill the fullness of the church so that then it can flow to those in the community it could be me we community me we community That I can be filled, then you can be filled, then the community can be filled. And then you have the comparison between the woman with the issue of blood where she reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. Remember Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head that flows down the beard, even Aaron's beard, and then on down to the hems of his garments. And then I told you, the woman grabbing the hem of his garment, she was experiencing the anointing because it was flowing through the fullness of the body of Christ. And the same story, but with a very different result, happened with Uzzah in the Old Testament. When the Ark of the Covenant, the conveyor, the carrier of God's presence on the earth, shook, Uzzah touched it, and the thing that was supposed to bring life brought death, and he was struck dead. She touched the presence of God and got life. He touched the presence of God and got death. Why? Because he touched it when they were carrying the presence of God, or attempting to, in a heathen manner. They were copying the way the Philistines had set up to carry the Ark. They were doing it with a new cart with new oxen, and they were trying to do that according to the Philistines' manner, not according to the Levitical manner that God had set up. So Uzzah reached out, what should have brought life brought death. The woman reached out, touched the presence of God in Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of Godhead bodily, and she got life. And uh, it's up to us. We are conveyors and communicators of the presence of God on this earth. If we set ourselves up in a way that God has designed, people will touch the church and they'll get life. If we try to do it after the world, they'll touch the church and they'll get death just like what the world has to offer we have that choice and so that's the filling the fullness and the flow and then it moves from that into favor where god bestows the special blessing upon a church unified think about the book of acts they were all gathered together in an open room in one mind and one accord and then they heard a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and then tongues of fire set upon each of them the power of the holy spirit manifested for the first time in the new covenant upon a unified church And then God leads that on into forever. It's not just a temporary blessing. It's a perpetual blessing. And that brings us to where we're at today. We good? Everybody tracking with that? All right. Where we're at today is 3 John, verse 1. 3 John, verse 1. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that in all things you may prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. I heard or I rejoiced greatly when brethren came in and testified of the truth that is in you even as you walk according to truth. Beloved, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture, particularly verse 2. You can go back to verse 2. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. Now, I want, I want to tell you guys some, some things. Today, the word for the day, I'm going to start out with this so everybody knows, the word for the day to finish out the series is inheritance. 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 What do you got to do to get an inheritance? Somebody has to die. Well, what do you got to do to get it? You just got to receive it. You got to exist. <laughs> Hey, everybody is hoping that they have some estranged great-uncle that has millions of dollars that just happens to die and include them in their will. Come on, everybody, everybody, everybody just secretly hopes for that. You get a letter in the mail. So-and-so has died and left you as the benefactor of their estate. You know, here's $34 million. It's like, hey, praise God, hallelujah, I'm going to tithe. We'll do 20% on this one because that's such a blessing. Anyway. <laughs> anyway oh lord have mercy yeah we all have dreams don't we (laughs) inheritance i'm going to give you guys an alliteration and we're going to use words that start with the letter w and the first word is willing willing you know i don't think that anybody in this room doubts that god is able to bless you does anybody doubt god has the power to bless you does anybody doubt that god knows what you need No. Most people would say that believe in God, they would say, God is able to bless me. God knows what I need and knows how to bless me. God is able to heal me. God knows what I need and knows how to heal me. Our question and where we always get hung up in the church for some stupid reason is on whether or not God is willing to do it. So on whether or not God is willing you know one of my favorite places in scripture I say that a lot because I love the Bible it's rich and it's filled with life but I love the story everybody talks about Matthew 5 through 7 the Sermon on the Mount but my favorite thing about the Sermon on the Mount is what immediately happens after Jesus is teaching this sermon and listen I have preached my heart out you get done teaching and get done preaching you are dog tired If the anointing is on you, look, there's a difference between the anointing and the glory. The anointing is on you, and you operate in that anointing, it will drain you. But you get in the glory, it will fill you. The sweet spot is when you get to get in the glory and the anointing at the same time, and it's like this perpetual flow, and you feel like you're Superman or something. And then when you walk out of that, you're like dead. (laughs) But anyway, Jesus is preaching the best sermon ever preached, in my opinion. Sermon on the Mount. And coincidentally, it only took 11 minutes. It takes 11 minutes to read through the Sermon on the Mount. So if anyone ever says 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour is the best amount of time to preach, tell them, say, Jesus, what he preached, I could preach in 11, and that's the best sermon ever preached. And, you know, see where they go with that. But (laughs) the point is this. He preaches this amazing message and comes down, and it says there met him right there, a leper. A leper met him. And the leper says this. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you know what Jesus does? Are you sure? Is your theology lined up? Like, do you have all your jot and tittles and like all of your nuances of your doctrine correct and in place? That's not what he does. Jesus reaches out, touches him, and says, I am willing, be clean. See, Jesus goes overboard. And when I say that, he goes overboard. Because what people believe, and this is an indictment against us, what we believe is if somebody has the flu, we're like, they're contagious. Somebody has COVID, six foot, six foot, don't breathe on me. Where your mask at? Where your mask at? Come on. We believe. Death is contagious. But then we won't believe the same thing about life. We will believe that death is contagious, but we fail to believe or acknowledge that life is contagious. Even in Hosea, he says this prophetically. He says, If someone that is holy touches someone that is unholy, are they then made unclean? And everybody answers, Yeah, yeah, they'd be unclean. But God doesn't say that. What we have failed to realize is if death is contagious, how much more is life? If sickness is contagious, how much more is health? If pain and misery loves company, how much more joy? Jesus breaks the rules to contact. And meet this leper where he was at. This leper was out on faith. He was going against all social convention. He wasn't supposed to be anywhere near Jesus. He wasn't supposed to be talking to Jesus. He wasn't supposed to be anywhere near where all these people were at. Because you've got to think. It says that there were several thousand. You don't know how many people were there he- hearing the Sermon on the Mount preached. But it was multitudes. And here you have this leper that everybody believes is contagious and a social pariah. He comes in the midst of all that to come into contact with Jesus breaking all the rules, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. doesn't just say, I'm willing, you're clean, go on. But he comes into contact with where he's at because Jesus has an understanding that his virtue, because when the woman of issue of blood touches him, Jesus turns around because he felt that power or virtue had went out of him to heal this woman. Jesus knows that his power, his anointing, his virtue is much more contagious than that man's leprosy. And I am longing for the day when Christians start walking in enough of the anointing and the power of the Spirit to where when we come into contact with people, they receive what we got. That they start saying, I've got to stay six foot away from that guy because he's a Christian. I've got to stay six foot away from that woman because she got the Holy Ghost. And if I come within six foot, I'm going to get that on me. You know, one of the stories that I love in Scripture is when David is being pursued by Saul. David goes to where Samuel's at. This is a funny story. David goes to where Samuel's at And then they start getting the Spirit on them. They start having a Holy Ghost party. And so Saul sends some messengers to go get David. Well, guess what? They fall on the ground of the power of Spirit and start prophesying which I believe is the Old Testament version of speaking in tongues. I don't believe they were saying the Lord is coming back on this day or this. No, I believe that when it says they were prophesying, they were speaking in tongues in the Old Testament. That they fall on the ground and they start flopping like fish and carry on having a Holy Ghost party. So Saul sends more. They do the same thing. So Saul comes himself and is like, no, I'm going to get David because I know where he's at. He walks up in the church house, metaphorically, walks into the church house and falls out in the spirit. The man he wants to kill is feet away from him, but he is so overwhelmed by the power of God in that spirit that even though he he walked in with murderous intent he gets overwhelmed by the spirit and starts flopping on the ground and prophesying so that it becomes a proverb is saul among the sons of the prophets i would love it if we had so much power of god in this place that somebody could walk in with a gun like lakewood like everything else they could walk in with a gun and the power of god be so strong they'd fall on the ground and flop like a fish and prophesy and speak in tongues that's what i would love if the anointing could be so thick and so contagious in this place that it didn't matter if they came in with hate, with malice, with grudge, with judgment, ready to kill somebody, that they wouldn't be able to make it through the four four-year doors without falling on the ground and being overwhelmed with the power of God. And I believe it's possible. And I believe that we're on a trajectory to that. Amen? Amen? So the first question is, is God willing? See, these are all questions about things that hinder us from walking in joy. Is God willing? yes. He is willing. He is willing for you to be healed. He is willing for you to prosper. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 10.22, Proverbs 10.22, one of my favorite scriptures, it says this. It says, yeah, laugh at me. I say everything. My favorite scripture. Proverbs 10.22, it says, The blessing of the Lord, it makes rich, but He adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord, it makes rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. Is God willing, God is willing to touch you in your spirit, in your soul, in your body, in your relationships, and in your finances. He is willing. And what we do is, you guys remember the parable of talents? The last one, Jesus said, there's two accounts. There's the ten, the five, and the one, and then there's the five, the two, and the one. But if you read in the context, he gave it to ten different people. Gave one ten, gave one nine, gave one eight, one seven, one six, one five, one four, one three, one two, one one. Right? And then they just give different accounts according to their personality and the inspiration of the Spirit. Well, the one that has ti- uh, 10 gets interest, has 10. The one that has 5 gets interest, has 5 more. But the one that receives 1 talent buries it. And when he comes to receive count, when the master comes to receive account of the stewards, the one that has 1, he says this He says, I knew that you were a hard man, that you reaped where you did not sow. And he begins to go into this explanation of how he knew that his master was a difficult person. And so guess what happens? The one talent he has is taken away, given to the one that has ten, and he is sent into punishment because he had a misconception of who God was of who his master was and a lot of times that's what we do is we operate with a misconception we think God is hard we think that he's angry at us that he's ready to strike us down we think that he's wrathful that he's indignant and we forget that God is the one that set up the whole plan of redemption God the Father is not mad at us he's not disgusted we're not barely tolerable and Christ Jesus jumps in the way and makes us halfway acceptable to God no he loves us and he delights in us and he treasures. And we are a jewel and a diadem in his sight and he wants to have intimacy with us and he invites us into that. But if we choose to live our life thinking of him as a judge and someone that's filled with wrath, we are never going to participate in covenant or in intimacy and then we are going to be treated according to the way that we view God under the law and it's going to end in our eternal punishment or perdition. But if we can get our minds around the fact that God's not mad at us, he's mad about us, everything changes. Amen. God is willing. That's the first point. The second point is welcome. And no, I'm not going to sing Maui, you know, killed a nil, planted its guts, planted a tree, now you got coconuts. I'm not going to do that. You guys know what that's from? Moana. Anyway, I got a daughter that's six years old, okay? Like, (laughs) you're going to have to bear with me, all right? You're welcome. Like, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, the point is this. You are welcomed. Welcomed. See, many of us treat Christianity as like we're just barely skirting in. You know how many times I've heard people say, I don't care as long as I get to be a door holder in the kingdom. Like how we're like skating in and we take that psalm and we're like, better is it to, you know, keep the Gay or keep the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle than to dwell in the courts of the wicked like we take that psalm and then we just kind of like capitalize on it but we treat it as like we're barely sliding in like here's the line and we're barely stepping over the line into the kingdom of God and we treat it like we're we're invited but we're not really sure that we are deserving of the invite. You guys ever been to a party or a fancy shindig where you're like, I don't know why I was invited to this. So you kind of like sneak in and sit in the back, you know, and try to be as inconspicuous as possible. You guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that's ever received an invite? And it's like, ooh, I don't know if I belong here. So I'm going to tread carefully. And you try not to say anything, and you feel like if you mess up, you'll ruin the party for everybody. <laughs> okay, maybe it's just me, whatever. But... That is not the way the kingdom of God operates. Again, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is in Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul, he says, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which is Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will that we are made accepted in the beloved according to the good pleasure of his will we're accepted in the beloved. That's Ephesians six. Accepted in the beloved. See, I love that because the word accepted is a bestowal of favor and grace so powerful that it changes your identity. It's used in one other place in Luke when Gabriel speaks to Mary and says that she's highly favored. It's a favor that is so prominent that changes your identity and you went from being not accepted to now being accepted and celebrated. When God made Adam and Eve, He didn't just say, okay, this is, this is good. Every other thing, He said, this is good. Light, darkness, Good. Water, separated, good. (laughs) Plants, bearing fruit, good. Animals, or greater light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night, stars in the heaven, good. Animals, fish in the sea, birds in the air, good. But when he made man, he said, this is very good. This is very good. God loves us. God cherishes us. God delights in us. And we really need to get this change in perspective going where we stop thinking that God barely tolerates us and know that He actually wants us. Yes, I have been there where you're like, I don't deserve to be wanted. I have the traumatic childhood. I have the horror stories of being unaccepted. I have the people sitting in a father position that have abused and abused and thrown me out. I have people sitting in a pastor's position that's supposed to represent God in my life, supposed to be a mentor, and they destroy me and tear me down rather than build me up and encourage me. I have the horror stories. You want to talk about church hurt? I could write books. My wife and I have talked about writing a book. There's a game called Dungeons and Dragons. There's a game called Dungeons and Dragons. Right, and there's a book called The Book of Monsters, right? And it's an appendium. Op- and it has a monster, and it has like the description of the monster and their power levels and all, where you can find them and all that stuff. I have actually started a book called The Book of Church Monsters, types of church people that hurt, that use and abuse you, and putting a story with it. And I got so far in that it made me sick, and I just dropped it. I've seen church splits over paint colors that people have chose. They chose it, it got put on the walls, and then they, they caused a church split. I have seen church splits over people that you called them granny instead of grandma. I'm serious. I have seen church splits over people putting the wrong color curtains up. I have seen church splits over somebody not getting your name right the second or third time they ever met you. I have seen church splits over somebody, you going through a situation and stepping down from a ministry, they put somebody else because they don't want the ministry to fall apart, and then you cause a huge dr- drama situation. I have seen church splits over somebody saying, God told me to put this person as assistant pastor, and you wanted it, and now there's a church. I have seen all of this horrid stuff happen in churches. I've seen all of it. And what we do is we take all those situations from our family, from our friends, from ministers, from mentors, from church situations, and then we ascribe all of that horror onto God and say this must be who He is. It's not. That's more of a description of who Satan is. It's not God. God welcomes you and bestows such a favor on you that it transforms the very nature of your identity. He wants you with Him. He wants you with Him. If I can't get you to understand anything else, understand that you are welcome in the kingdom of God as a blessed and highly favored individual. Amen? Amen. The next point, and this is where some people get in a little tizzy, wealthy. Wealthy. Let me say it again. Wealthy. <laughs> Look, you start talking about finances and people get their, their panties in a wad. Am I allowed to say that behind the pulpit? I'm going to. Like, I'm serious. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I just read a certain congregate's mind. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I am (laughs) sorry. Kind of. (laughs) Lord. Lord. You start talking about money. You start talking about finances. And people get all up in a tizzy. And it's like some people believe, oh, money. You don't talk about religion, politics, and money around people. And other people are like, they preach a poverty gospel until they walk through it. I've been Poe, and I'm glad I'm not Poe no more. <laughs> I don't like being Poe. <laughs> I don't like being broke. I don't like not having enough to pay my bills. I don't like not having enough to feed my kids. I don't like not having enough when my car needs an oil change. I have to pray and beseech God and thank God for bringing a blessing in to pay for my car to need an oil change. I don't like the fact that know, to know that if I get a flat tire on my way to work, I'm going to have to fast to bring in a blessing to pay for that tire so I can continue to get to work. I don't like living like that. I don't think that God likes me living like that. See, here's the thing that I don't understand. And I'm, I'm going to hit on this for just a few minutes, but here's the thing that I don't understand. I don't understand how we can read the Old Testament and the greatest people in the Old Testament, the ones that we remember the most, the one that we teach our kids about in Sunday school, every single one of them was what we would call filthy rich. And then we get to the New Testament and it's like, God wants everybody to be poor. I thought God didn't change. Abraham, so rich that he said, I'm not taking a dime from you because if I do, you'll say you made me rich. No, God makes me rich. Solomon, Solomon. So much money that silver was treated like gravel. I'd like to have that much money, and I'm not even preaching about money. I don't I don't that's I don't love money, but I'm saying that would be nice to not have any needs and be able to feed the hungry and to just bless this community like crazy. You can't outgive God. You're blessed to be a blessing. David. Think about how rich he was. What he went from sitting with his father's herd because he didn't even have his own to now being king over the United Kingdom of Israel. Job. Job was mentioned this morning. Disgustingly rich. And then everything was taken away. He still praised God and guess what God did? God gave him a double portion. What about Joseph being exalted to such a place that there is only one person in the entire world above him and it was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh didn't even know what he had because it was all in Joseph's account. And then we get to the New Testament and it's like God wants everybody to be broke and busted and poor. How are you supposed to bless people if you're not blessed? How are you supposed to help people if you don't have nothing to help them with? And people will say, well, the love of money is the root of all evil. Yes. Actually, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But you've got to finish that conversation. 1 Timothy 6, 17. You've got to finish the conversation. People will preach that gain is godliness. They're wrong because gain isn't godliness, but godliness can produce gain. What is this? Charge them that are not that are rich in this present age or in this world, that they be not high minded or proud or haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us all wait, charge them that are rich to understand that God is the one that gives them that rich those riches to enjoy. You've got to finish the conversation. I hate when people pull verses out of context and throw them left and right and say, well, God, money is evil. No. The love of money, exalting money above God. And then they'll throw this at me. And this is a serious conversation. This is a serious conversation. Is it difficult for a rich man to get into heaven? Yes, absolutely. It's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven, right? Right? Is it difficult for you to get in heaven? Let me tell you something. It's difficult for everybody to get in heaven. It's impossible. What people don't realize is that the conversation was about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? there's none good but God and see what people don't understand is this teaching and I'm gonna hit this for a second is that when Jesus says why do you call me good there's none good but God what he's not saying is he's not saying I'm not good because I've heard people preach that and I'm like that's stupid what he's saying is if you're gonna call me good you're gonna have to take the next step and call me God because there's no such thing as a good teacher there's a good God and everybody else falls short so if you're gonna call me good you have to take the next step that's what Jesus is communicating and then he says, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, I've kept all these. He was lying. He hadn't. Everyone sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he said he had. And Jesus said, okay, well, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the, the rich young man, what, what's he do? He walks away because he had great possessions. See, he exalted his money above God. That's why Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. What Jesus is doing immediately from the start is saying, you're either going to have me as God or you're going to have your wealth as God. And so he works him down through the process to where he has to make a choice. You have to either choose your wealth or you have to choose me. And what I want you to understand is I don't care if you're a millionaire. I don't care if you're a billionaire. You still have the same choice as somebody that doesn't have two pennies to rub together and that you can either exalt your riches above as God or you can exalt God as God. And the moment that your possessions are unrelinquishable, you, they're no longer your possessions, now you have become their possession. Mo- when money becomes your God, you've missed it. But if you can have millions and still know God gives it to you richly to enjoy and you use those appropriately, bless God for you. I'll be your best friend. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, Like, like I, I, I salute you. I, I salute you because the ultimate reality comes down to this. Who is your God? If God is your God, it's okay if He blesses you financially. He says that He would. The Proverbs 10.22, you know, He gives us the blessing of the Lord it makes rich and He adds no sorrow to it. Proverbs 11.25 continues that and He says, He, the generous soul, shall be made rich. He that waters shall himself be watered. You can see this circulating throughout Scripture that God does bless financially and He has a lot to say about finances. However, when we get so preoccupied in that, That's when we get into trouble. So money is not the issue. The issue is the heart. But let me tell you something. If you're all the time struggling financially, it becomes difficult to know and to have joy. When you're so stressed and so caught up in making your ends meet, it's hard to walk in joy in that spot. It is. It's hard when you don't have money to buy food. It's hard to walk in joy. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's hard. But when you hand all that to God, you hand all that to God, it becomes a whole lot easier. Whether the money's there or not, because you realize He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides. Amen? So, God is willing. You are welcomed. You are wealthy. And the next point, Is well. I pray that in all things you may prosper and be in health. The next point is well, God wants to touch your body. He that raised Jesus Christ from the dead shall, with that same spirit, or the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells in your body. And if He, with that same spirit, shall also quicken your mortal body, I butchered that verse. I apologize. But the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ dwells in you, and He shall also, with that same spirit, quicken your mortal body, your physical body. There is healing in the atonement. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon stripes we were healed. Uh, he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might live under righteousness, be dead unto sin and live under righteousness who, with whom stripes we are healed. There is plenty of healing in the, te- in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Both have a testimony of healing. Um, Psalms 105 37 Psalms one hundred five thirty seven says this, it says he brought them out with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among his tribes. There is a covenant of healing that has always existed and always been present with God he is Jehovah Rapha the Lord our healer you are well when you say that you are sick you are putting yourself in disagreement with God when you say that you are poor you are putting yourself in disagreement with God when you are saying you are unworthy or unlovable you are putting yourself in disagreement with God and that is not a good place to be it's not a good place to be Moving from there, because we've talked about healing quite a bit, moving to the next point, whole. W-H-O-L-E, not whole in the ground. Whole, complete. Shama, or shalom, I'm sorry, not present. Shalom, peace. Nothing missing, nothing broken. You are whole. Even as your soul prospers, I pray above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Your soul is your mind, your will, your intellect, your emotions, your imagination, your conscience, and your thoughts. All of those arenas, that's your soul. The mental sphere, And God wants you to be whole. A lot of times, one of the biggest barriers to us walking in the joy of the Lord is anxiety. Anxiety, depression, turmoil, rage, fear, sadness, frustration, disgust, contempt, the list goes on. But our emotions become one of the biggest barriers between us and walking in the wholeness that God wants us to walk in. And part of the problem is that we forget that God doesn't want you to carry that burden. Have you ever tried to carry something you aren't strong enough to carry? You know, you think about like throwing your back out. (laughs) You know, the 40 trips I made up and down the stairs because Frank abandoned me on moving the chairs. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He was going to do it. I just beat him to the punch. But <laughs> but anyway, I had to have a humble brag. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> love. <laughs> oh, Lord. oh, Lord, I'm merciful. <laughs> But you know, you, you like pull a muscle or you throw your back out and you're sore and you're hurting because you're not strong enough to carry that. Let me tell you something. Your fear and your anxiety is a burden that you are not strong enough to carry. God does not give us the spirit of fear but a power of love and a sound mind. And it tells us this. My favorite passage to talk to somebody about when they're struggling in the realm of their mind is Philippians 4. When it says this, it says, In nothing be anxious. Nothing Nothing, no thing, in no arena of your life is it okay for you to be anxious. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. And he says, finally, like a continuation, like this is a good point. The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, let's capitalize on that point. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things. Or modern translations would say meditate. Continually think on these things. Run everything through this filter. Meditate on these things. Those things that you have learned and are heard and seen in me, that you have been taught and received of me, do and the God of peace shall be with you. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. See, what we don't realize is Paul is writing to a scared and anxious church. And I'll teach on this at a greater length in another time. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. And if you carry that through and you do a study on it, they were fearful and they were anxious. He had already received one report of their fear and their anxiety. And he was answering them back with joy, with the joy of the Lord. And that's why he tells them, He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as we quoted earlier, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of servant, who was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things on the earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's a song, a doxology. And many people believe that it was a song that the early church fathers sang. That song he inserts, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and then the doxology. That same epistle he carries over two chapters later and says, be anxious for nothing. He is capitalizing on this saying, let this mind be in you, the mind of humility, the mind of service, the mind of obedience, because what happens is Christ is exalted above everything. Christ is exalted above everything. And in his exaltation, we can now trust that everything that has a name, which is everything, anything, is underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is over all things. So therefore, we do not have to be fearful or anxious. We can commit ourselves wholly and completely entirely unto him. And his peace, that nothing missing, nothing broken, will keep our hearts and our minds in him. And here's how we appropriate that, by meditating on whatever is true Jesus is the truth on whatever is pure, whatever is honest, whatever is lovely. And the list goes on, and you can compare each one of those as a manifestation or a description or an attribute of Jesus himself. And the word good report literally is what we get, the gospel. If anything is of good report, it, the gospel. But you know what? There's one other place in scripture that I love to circle around to when we're talking about mental wholeness. How many of you guys are familiar with the passage of Scripture? Be sober, be vigilant, for the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What we don't realize is, does anybody know what verse comes right before that? Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. See, the devil is seeking those that have not cast their cares on God, because they're carrying a burden that's unfair for them to carry. Have you ever been holding something heavy and tried to run? <laughs> You're holding something heavy and you try like pick up the pulpit and try to run with it. <laughs> it makes it a whole lot harder to run. <laughs> you ever, Mike? You ever carried somebody out of a burning building? Is it easier to run with somebody or without somebody? Without, definitely. <laughs> but you got to carry them out. It's harder to run, and it becomes more dangerous. Because not only are you going slow, but your reaction time is also slowed, right? The devil can catch you a whole lot easier if you're carrying a burden you're not meant to carry. If you're carrying fear, if you're carrying anxiety, if you're carrying stress, if you're carrying turmoil, if you're carrying um, depression, if you're carrying sadness, you're carrying disgust, you're carrying frustration, you're broken in your, the realm of your mind, you are not fast enough to outrun that lion, which is Satan. And so you cannot be sober of a sound mind and vigilant because you're too distracted With anxiety and fear and depression and the list goes on. God wants you whole. And he's made a way for us to do that. If you are struggling with anxiety, read Philippians 4, particularly verses 8 and 9, until it makes you sick. Memorize them, quote them. Because that's how you're going to process through this. And I've told you guys before, my wife and I end every night the exact same way. We first get everything, every weight off of our chest. Is there anything you want to talk about that didn't go well today? That's on your mind, that's stressful, that's painful, that you need to process? We do that and we say, okay, now that that's been processed, what's three things that made you happy today? What's three ways you saw God at work in your life today? And then we conclude it by praying and giving a prayer of thanks for our life and for one another. And it will begin to reset your mind so that as you go through the day, you'll see something. You'll be like, wow, that's one of my happies for the day. Or wow, that's a way I saw God working today. And it reprograms your life so that you're no longer stressed and dwelling on anxiety and torment and Satan's devouring you, but you're actually existing in the mind of Christ. Amen? And the last point so God is willing, you are welcome into the kingdom, you are wealthy, you are well, you are whole. And the last point is two in one. And it's simply this. If you can get that and begin to walk it out, you will become a witness for those around you. If you walk it out, you will become a witness. Let me tell you something. You ever seen somebody that's just perpetually happy, everything going on in their life, and they're just overflowing with the joy of the Lord, and they're never sick, and they're never struggling, and they're never beat down, and they're never struggling financially, and everything just seems like it goes right for that person, and you're like, good Lord, what are they doing? Because I want to do that. The world thinks the exact same way. And when the world starts seeing that we are a covenant people that have the favor of God operating in our lives, they're going to want it a whole lot more. And we will become a witness. And people will start asking questions and coming in and trying to get what we've got. And then they're going to have that whole Saul experience coming in and having the anointing so thick that they fall down on the floor and flop like a fish. Amen?